Take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1. Lord willing, we're going to work through the book of Philippians together in the weeks ahead. I was doing just fine until that last song, and then that one is the one that uh, got me all uh, emotional. Um, it's been a while since we've uh, pulled out one of the uh, oldies, so you can just keep pulling them out, Nate, as far as I'm concerned. Um, we're going to start by reading the first uh, five verses of Philippians chapter 1. We won't go very far and we won't spend a lot of time in them. We'll make a couple of notes along the way, so we'll pause every once in a while in these first five verses. But our main attention is going to be preparing us for the letter to the Philippians. So we read in verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and the deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So just a couple of things to pick up there right at the beginning. When Paul begins the letter to this church in Philippi, he says, Paul and Timothy. So there's two of them writing this together, working together here. And he calls himself and Timothy bond servants of Jesus Christ. Now, Bond servants is not something we're familiar with, but it was for all intents and purposes the same as a slave. We could argue about what level of slave it is, but Paul and Timothy are here referring to themselves in the introduction of this letter as slaves of Jesus Christ. Um, that's an interesting choice because he's writing from a Roman prison, prisonership. He's under arrest. He's in Rome, he's under guard, he's not uh, at liberty to do whatever he wants, wherever he wants, whenever he wants to do it. He's not in a dungeon, per se, he's not uh, in some you know, pit with the, you know, surrounded by darkness and no visitors. He's awaiting a hearing um, at the Capitol, uh, hoping to appear before Caesar, and he has a certain amount of liberty at this point in time, liberty enough to meet with Timothy, who's not under the same arrest, and to write letters. But, let's just be clear, it's not necessarily the position he would prefer to be in under arrest. Now, um, Paul, and this is going to be prevalent in the first chapter here, Paul was, we call, an apostle, and he calls himself an apostle. But his function in the early church was not a pastor. That's not what he was. He was a missionary. Um, and not a, a, a home missionary. I mean, there's a sense in which we could say we're all supposed to be engaged in missionary work. We're all supposed to be concerned with taking the gospel to people uh, who uh, have not responded to the gospel in faith. But Paul is a traveling, what we would call today, a foreign missionary. He is moving about from place to place, um, either in places where they've never heard the gospel before, certainly the case frequently in his first and second missionary journeys, or at least visiting to strengthen places where he has been and a church has started. And as a missionary... He's been around to some pretty well-known places. Um, 
New Paris probably wouldn't have made the list of Paul's, one of the destinations for, for one of Paul's travels. I mean, he, the places that we have here, Corinth, Philippi, Thessalonica, these are, are not insignificant places, and I would imagine there was a certain level of thinking that went into that. Now, that's not to say that as he traveled through smaller places, he wasn't doing missionary work there, but he was traveling through them to get to the larger areas where the most people were and the largest gatherings of Jewish people might be found because it was the Jewish people who were meeting in their synagogues who he would go to with the highest expectation of response. After all, going to the Jewish people, they're familiar with the scriptures. They're familiar with, I mean, they're, they're working from the same textbook. And they're sensitive to the same spiritual language and spiritual things that Paul is teaching. And so his pattern would be to go to a place, a large place, go into the synagogue, listen, participate, ask to speak, stay afterwards and talk, and minister first there in the synagogue among Jewish people who were familiar with the, the prophetic person of the Messiah. I mean, these were the people in the synagogues who were supposed to be looking for the Messiah, so that's where you go. Um, as he writes here, he's not at liberty to travel around doing mission work, and yet, and this is where the theme is here in kind of the first chapter, he's not doing other work either. Like, he's not, he's not supporting himself in any other way. So if he is going to feed himself and function and operate, he's relying on the giving of, of others, specifically churches. And one of the churches that had been particularly generous to him is this church in Philippi. Um, and he's writing, at least in some sense, to recognize that and to give an update on his status and to show gratitude for those uh, continued support because, I mean, you might be forgiven as a church for thinking uh, we want to you know, give strategically to someone who's out doing mission work, maybe not someone who's in prison. You know? <laughs> I mean, if, if you have designated missions giving that you're going to do as a church to spread the gospel around, I mean, at some point you want the missions people to be doing missions work, traveling around sharing the gospel, and he's not at liberty to do that. He's confined. Now, it would be callous and unchristian to cut a guy off because he was arrested while doing missionary work. And nevertheless, we can almost infer from the gratitude he shows in this letter to the Philippians that there were strains in his relationships with some of the other churches who had been supportive. Um, this is somewhat unique. And can't say any of that definitively, but there's, there's the inference as we go through chapter 1 that... Philippi had been continually faithful without ceasing um, where others had perhaps not been. Um, he recognizes in verse 1, by the way, the offices of pastors. Those are bishops or overseers, all the same, all the same function, all the same role in the church. He recognizes the role of pastors there and also deacons there. Uh, first, recognizing all the saints. This is a letter to the Christians. 
and to the two offices of the church that are serving in Philippi, pastors and deacons. Grace to you, peace from God our Father, Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're only going to read 3 through 5 here. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine. That's pretty complete language there. I thank my God in every remembrance of you, always in every prayer. There's probably not many people in your life that you can say that about. Making request for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. In other words, in all of his prayer, he always mentions the requests and needs that he knows of in Philippi for them. He always petitions the Lord for them. And in these petitions, it is always joyful to him to do it. And the reason it's always joyful for him is because they have been in fellowship in the gospel, i.e. they've been supporting him in the gospel from the very first day until now without stopping. That's something to be thankful for. That's something to be happy about. That's something to smile about. And Paul had lots of things, presumably, that he was praying about that were not uplifting thoughts. (laughs) Philippi was a, a source of joy for Paul in his travels. Now, we've done the letter to the church in Corinth, and we know not all the churches were always doing so well in terms of spiritual faithfulness. But Philippi is is doing well in a cause of joy to Paul. Now, of particular interest to me is the phrase, from the first day until now. So what we're going to do, turn over to Acts chapter 16, and I just want to look at the first day. Let's see when this started. Now, the context of Acts chapter 16 is Paul's second missionary journey. He's already done the first one with Barnabas where they went around and now he's on the second one and Silas is his partner here. He's on the second missionary journey. The time frame of this is about 12, 13 years before the letter. So the the letter is about 13 years after this. This is day one, if you will. The letter is going on a decade and a half later. But he says they've been faithful in their fellowship of the gospel with him all this time. Let's look at how it starts. Now, we're going to start reading in verse 10. Now, after he had seen this vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Okay, the we here is Luke writing. Luke penned the book of Acts. Luke did. Luke is now with Paul. There are parts prior to this where he's not traveling with them, and he simply gives an account of what Paul did or others did. But now Luke is with Paul, and he's saying, we were going to go to Asia, but we were kind of stopped, and instead, uh, not sure why we were not making progress in our journey, um, Paul had a vision. Now, I've never had a vision, okay? I don't think Luke has either. He doesn't recount one. We're not given to think that, hey, you know, don't, the, I, a good application from this morning is not to go home and say, huh, I need to start having more visions. That's not what this is about, okay? But Paul had one. And the vision was a young man saying, hey, come help us. And apparently, this is Macedonia. 
in the direction that they're headed. Now, you may not know a lot about Macedonia, but Macedonia was in its heyday in the Greek Empire, which was before the Roman Empire. Um, Philippi, the place where, you know, the letter to the Philippians went, Philippi is named after Philip II. Now, Philip II is the father of Alexander the Great. So Philip II uh, has, you know, even today, large statues and monuments of him. Um, He uh, has Alexander the Great and his son, Alexander the Great, is going to usher in the Greek Empire, going to conquer all of the the Persians, and the world is going to be a Greek-speaking, Greek world from that point on. So this city is an important, you know, civic pride place for the people in this region. And because it was an important civic pride place in the Greek Empire, it also is in the Roman Empire. It's an official colony of Rome, which means the people there are officially citizens. Now, there are a lot of people in the Roman Empire who are not citizens. A lot of conquered lands in the Roman Empire where people are not citizens. They're, they're, they're subjects. They're not citizens. To be a citizen was to have rights. I mean, real rights. You know, a lot of the, the our you know uh, political system that infers citizenship and rights and you know republic and democracy comes from a lot of thinking that really was grounded in uh, various stages of the Roman Empire. To be a citizen meant something. There was a lot of civic pride here. The Caesars had done things, major val- major battles. Julius Caesar, Mark Antony, right around this area of Philippi. This was a well-known place. And Paul says, okay, we got to go there. Verse 11, therefore sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace and the next day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. So you get the idea. Again, not that the other places don't matter, but he's being strategic in his mission work. If he's going to go to Macedonia, he's going to go to Philippi. That's the capital. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, now this is when, you know, people would get together in the synagogue and pray. This was was Paul's day in missions work. On the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. Now that, that might not tell you anything, but what it means is there was no synagogue in Philippi. This is pure, unreached territory, even for the Jews. So the Jewish people, in the absence of of being able to start a synagogue, it took 10 Jewish men, heads of households, to even start a synagogue. They didn't have anywhere near even 10. So they went out to the river, and on the Sabbath, they would meet outside the city where they could be free of any persecution, any observatory ridicule, and they would pray by the river. So Paul goes out there to the river with them. These are the Jews. And we sat down and we spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. And she wasn't from Philippi. (laughs) There was no big Jewish presence there. She'd found herself in Philippi. So she's from Thyatira. She's got a business. says seller of purple. That could be dyes. That could be garments. Look at the next phrase here. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Um, This is going to be a theme in chapter 1 as well. 
It's a theme throughout the New Testament. Share the gospel and evangelize. But know this, no one responds to the gospel of Jesus Christ unless, as we read here, the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. In other words, as she was listening, God is working in her heart. And that's, that's a powerful thing. That's more powerful than whatever Bible tract you're using or song you're singing or phrase you've memorized. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with any of that stuff, but I'm telling you, absent the work of the Lord in the heart while you're working, there is no reception to the gospel. You might perk someone's interest, but this is where the power is. God has not called Paul and Silas to Macedonia to find emptiness. He's called them there for a moment like this, for this woman, for this reason. And when she and her household were baptized, I mean, they're at the river, she begged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Now, we don't know where they were staying, but this is a woman of means. She's got a business in a large city. And she's saying, come, stay. Let, let me come and, and stay with us. Verse 16. Now, it happened as we went to prayer... So they're going back over and over again to the same place. They're going out to the river, so weeks are passing. The Sabbath is, Sabbaths are rolling by here. It happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl, possessed with a spirit of divination, met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. So this is not a Holy Spirit-infused slave girl. This is a slave girl who has some spiritual possession, and whether or not she's telling true futures or not, I don't know, but she's making the people who own her a killing. This girl followed Paul and us, again, this is Luke writing, and cried out saying, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And she did this for many days. You see, time is rolling by here. Now, you think Paul and Silas should have been like, hey, Thank you. You know, we've been telling everybody that for a while now. But this is not like that. She's stirring up, more precisely, the spirit in possession of her is stirring up a mind of persecution, drawing negative attention because, again, the city of Philippi is not responsive to this kind of thing. There's a reason they're going out of the city down by the river to go have Jewish worship they're not responsive here. So it says here, and you know, we can all relate to Paul. If you didn't think Paul was a relatable person, look at verse 18. Paul was greatly annoyed. Is that relatable? Some of you can relate to that, I guess. Paul was greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. That's not a good thing. They brought them to the magistrates and said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. Meaning they cost us some money. 
And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive and observe. And these guys uh, had some, some friends in the whole event. Verse 22 says, Then the multitude rose up together against them. The magistrates tore off their clothes. Now, don't misunderstand. That's not the magistrates' clothes. They tore off Paul and Silas's clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. Now, beaten with rods is the same as flogging, is the same as scourging. This is the same punishment that the Romans did to Jesus. It's the same thing. It doesn't mean it was conducted to the same extent. It's the same punishment. And it was common. The reason they tore their clothes off and chose to beat him with rods is because this was a thing in the Roman Empire. Like, this was a justice in the Roman Empire. It was so common that Rome had a law that a citizen could not be flogged. Could not, this, you could not do this to a person who was a citizen. But you could do it to someone who wasn't a citizen. And so they strip them naked, which is part of the process. It's the humiliation of it. They tie them to something that forces them to bend over, and they beat them. And it could be with a rod. It could be with a cat of nine tails, which is what Jesus was whipped with, so more like a whip. Usually, it would be two people doing it, taking turns on the individual, two people flogging, two people whipping a person. It was so brutal, it was often called the, the sentence of half-death. Because the people would not die in it, usually, but often afterwards because of the wounds inflicted. So this is not like, you know, we're just going to have a, you know, a quick caning. This is a huge um, life and death, utter humiliation, brutal beating. When, when Paul is describing his merits as a missionary and what he has endured, he says he was beaten with rods three times. That's horrifying. This is one of them. But it's not something he, ha he experienced in every city. He experienced, you know, enemies in every city, not this. Um, okay. It says, verse 23, when they had laid many stripes on them, Stripes is a word for wounds, uh, by the way. When they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, the stocks are what we think of with stocks. That's, the word for stocks here means the wood. In other words, they've got at least their feet elevated and clamped down in wood which is its own torture, and they are in the inner prison because the jailer was given a charge, and the charge was keep these guys very securely, okay? They go to the inner prison, and we're, we put their feet in the, in the stocks. They're not going anywhere then. Verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. That might be the, the most remarkable verse one of the most remarkable verses, surely, in the New Testament. I don't know what they were singing. I know what they were doing. Laying on their backs with their feet up in the stocks or laying on their stomachs with their feet behind them in the stocks, bleeding and brutalized in a prison with no light in the inner prison, 
quietly among themselves amidst all the other prisoners who are in similar situation. They are singing and hymns and praising God. Um, suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately the doors were opened, everyone's chains loosened and the keeper of the prison awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. He did not want to be the jailer who experienced the punishment for letting all the prisoners escape. Suicide would be preferable in, the, in his opinion. But Paul called out with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Now, a while back, Steve and I listened to a message from a pastor, um, who I won't say his name, but if I said his name, everybody would know him. Very, very prominent pastor. And he was teaching on this, on this passage, but his version of teaching was not going through the verses. It was just picking a verse or two. And his message was on how you overcome struggles in your life. And he used this text to talk about how Paul and Silas, through prayer and trusting God, were able to free themselves from the Philippian prison. But I want you to understand, they did not free themselves from the Philippian prison. God did not save Paul and Silas through their Faithful prayer and singing. They stay in the prison. It says, verse 29, Then he called for a light and he ran in and he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and he washed their wounds. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. This is the middle of the night. And when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. Verse 35, when it was day, the magistrate sent the officers, the people who had ordered all this, sent the officers to the prison saying, hey, let those men go. This was not about justice or a trial or anything. This was just, this was mob justice. The mob was mad. Okay, beat them. The next day, all right, let them go. Get rid of them. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul. So what had happened, and, and you'll see this in the text, Paul had been taken out of the prison by the jailer, somehow has the strength after being stripped naked and beaten and his feet in the stocks all night to declare the gospel to the jailer's household. The jailer responds, his family believes and they're baptized, just glad that the man's life wasn't forfeited in the whole earthquake incident. The jailer then has all of their wounds cleaned and then they go back to jail. Now, I don't know if they go back to the inner jail or go back to their feet in the stocks jail, but that's where they had to be. And so they go back. This has been a long night. And now the magistrates send word. You know, the magistrates, magistrates again, unwittingly of all the other stuff that's happened here, send word, let these guys go. 
So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. So, all's well that ends well, right? But Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison, and now they would put us out secretly. No, indeed, let them come themselves and get us out. They're back in the prison. The officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Again, magistrates who were found to be depriving Roman citizens of their rights would not stay in a good situation for very long. Being a Roman citizen only meant something because of that. If, you, if their rights were violated, it was you know, bad news for the, for the ones who violated them. If, if a magistrate could simply ignore citizenship and do whatever they wanted, then being a citizen meant nothing whatsoever. It was no advantage. So this was a big deal. You weren't allowed to do this to Roman citizens. And the officers told the words. They were afraid when they heard they were Romans. Then they came to the prison and pleaded with them that they be, that, and they brought them out they asked them to depart from the city. So when they went out of the prison, again, that's where they were. And entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. They would not leave even this hostile place until they had resumed this fellowship that we read about in Philippians chapter 1. This fellowship in the gospel that had begun since day one. So we're not going to fly away by night here. We're going back and we're going to... This church that we started here, this small little church has just witnessed the brutal, bloody beating of what happens to Christians here. We're not leaving until we go back to them and encourage them and tell them what's happened and then we'll move on. Then we'll go. It's quite a commitment. Three points and then we'll move on to the Lord's Supper. First, notice the suffering here. And notice that the suffering here is ordained by God. God did not spare Paul and Silas. He didn't spare them. He allowed them to be beaten and scourged and brutalized and put in stocks. This is ordained by the Lord. And if that's hard for you, see what happened to our Lord Jesus. John chapter 15, 18 through 20. I'll just read it to you. These are the words of the Lord. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. This is fundamental teaching of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount. Persecution comes up in the opening verses. That's the beginning of Jesus' teaching ministry. So notice the suffering here. Second thing, notice the salvation. Again, God is not saving in any miraculous way Paul and Silas. You could look at what happened here and say, Paul and Silas would not experience a single physical improvement aside from whatever few hours they were spared sitting in the stocks. 
than if God had not done anything at all in terms of the earthquake. The earthquake. I mean, the magistrate still would have come the next day and said, all right, now let these guys go. The, the earthquake, the whole thing, he's not saving Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas are, again, this is, this is Luke. They are the, Luke 16, the unworthy servants who are doing only what they are commanded to do. Only what they've been commanded to do. They have been commanded to go here. They have been commanded to do this. And if they are mistreated in the process, then they are unworthy servants and they are only doing what they were commanded to do. But God is saving here. Who is he saving? He's saving a jailer and a household and a home and the people of the church in Philippi and all the believers that would come from the ministry of the people in the church in Philippi in all the years into the future. God is saving. Just not the flesh of Paul and Barnabas or Paul and Silas. Final thing. You see the partnership here. And this is, this is where the letter to Philippi that we're going to be in is flowing out of. It's this, it's this love that Lydia has for Paul and Silas. It's this concern that Paul and Silas have for Lydia. I don't know about you. If I had been brutally mistreated like this in a place and I'm told, okay, you can go, I, I would be ready to go. I would be ready to go. I can't even relate, relate to the emotions of all this. But they care about this place. This was the point of why they came to this place. They care about Lydia and the church that's there. Notice the suffering, the salvation, and notice the partnership. What we're going to see in the letter is Paul's uh, certainly love and joy at Philippi. But that love and joy is a mixture of the price that was paid to see those people come to salvation. And it should remind us, I think, for today, as we turn our attention to the Lord's Supper, of two things. One, if we're going to be effective in gospel ministry, there is going to be a price to be paid in that. I mean... People are not just going to stand by and not give you a hard time for ministering in the gospel. You are going to come up against resistance and persecution. You are not greater than your master. You have to have a real compassion for people to risk your reputation and the circumstances and to have the conversations with them. Look, there's a holy God that's going to call all human beings into account and He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to provide a way of salvation. And the cost on, on your behalf is relatively low to experience that salvation. Simply, what does Paul and Silas say to the jailer? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And the second thing that we should realize here is um, 
the price that the Lord himself paid and endured. When you are made fun of or mocked or someone wants to start up a big argument with you because of the conversation and the direction that you take it, assuming you're taking it to the gospel, when, when you lose business, when you lose friends, when relationships aren't what they used to be because of the gospel, when you lose opportunities, every time you experience that kind of resistance to the gospel, your attention and your mind, where should it be drawn to? It should be drawn to the Lord Jesus. It should be drawn to your master. Um, and, and you need to counsel yourselves as you're dealing with those feelings of, man, I didn't come here to be embarrassed. I didn't come here to, you know, I, I didn't come here to make this person mad. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't ask for this. This is not what I was looking for. I came here out of a good place. Not, I didn't want that. When you're, when you're going through the emotions, whether it's anger or frustration or sadness or of dealing with things like this, you need to encourage yourself with the words from the New Testament. A servant is not greater than his master. The, Jesus has told us that these things were going to happen, that it was going to be like this. This does not mean I'm a failure. This does not mean that I'm doing something wrong. This does not mean that I'm a bad person. This doesn't mean I said the wrong words. Jesus told me that it was going to be like this to some degree, sometimes at least. I'm not doing it wrong because this didn't go the way that I wanted it to go. You need to, inc you need to speak the truth of God's word. And you need to remind yourself that Jesus went to much greater lengths to see people saved than what you will likely have to endure. It's hard and it's challenging, but the reward is great. That's why this letter is important. The reward is great. The joy when you see God work in the lives of people that you've had any part in. The joy is real. And it was a joy that sustained Paul even in prisons in Rome. It's not a fake smile or a fake joy. For him, this was endurable. This was sustainable. Why? He was filled with the joy of knowing the fellowship that he had in the gospel with these people whom he otherwise would have no knowledge of except for the judgment of God that was coming generally to all the world in terms of hell. But, but if you find yourself dealing with joylessness, remind yourself of where your labor and your work should be. Remind yourself of the fellowship and the gospel that you're supposed to be in pursuit of with people. And if you can't take joy in that, something's off there. Something's off. You need to spend time talking that through because for Paul, it's a source of, of endless joy every time. And it never stops in his prayers. When he prays for them, when he thinks of them, there is joy, even in a prison, even in a dungeon. I don't want your service to the Lord to be mundane and joyless. If it is, something about the way you're approaching serving Jesus Christ might be off. You need to work through that with a pastor, with a brother, with a sister. You need to work through that. That's not as it should be. There are hard times serving the Lord. We see that from Paul. 
But there's also a real motivation and a real encouragement. You're supposed to cling to that because it's real. It's not phony. It's not the joy you get when you just go out and you buy a new TV or a a new something else or you take yourself to the movies because you want to feel better. It's more lasting than that. It's real. If it's absent, please deal with that spiritually. Don't just sit on that. Work through that. Let's close with the word of prayer. We'll observe the Lord's Supper together. Father God, I thank you for your love for us and I thank you for the flogging that you uh, endured on the back of, of our Lord Jesus. I thank you for the step further that he took to the cross for the, for the blood that was shed. And Father, we want to honor you in remembering that as we've been commanded to do so. And this is a simple way, this is a lowly way, this is a humble way of remembering that sacrifice, but it is an obedient way. And that's what we're striving to be in, in observing your supper, humble and obedient to your commands. So help us to do so well and not to do so with minds that are distracted or thinking about other things, but for this moment to be faithful servants, faithful children who carefully consider the elements. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.